Do you have a best friend? I have a best friend. His name is Tim. He and I grew up together in Ohio. We went to the same school, same church. We would sleep over at each other's house all the time. And we each have younger brothers, and they were also good friends, and our parents were really close as well. But I'm in Florida now, and Tim still lives up in Ohio. We haven't actually seen each other in years, but we still communicate by phone and on Facebook pretty regularly. Tim's the kind of guy that if I told him I had some kind of emergency and needed him here, he'd be on the next plane. And I'd do the same for him. That's just what best friends are supposed to do. My guest on the podcast today is Alex, and his story kind of illustrates that. He was outdoors working one day. This was in the summer, and Alex and some other men were working on a mountain that in the winter functioned as a ski slope. They were using chainsaws and getting the long mountain slope cleared of trees and other debris in preparation for the winter season. Alex ends up getting seriously injured, but it wasn't his chainsaw that caused the injury, and he didn't get hit by a falling tree. Alex was run over from behind by an unmanned 1,800-pound ATV, and he found himself trapped underneath it. He couldn't get out. He couldn't even move. And since he didn't know if anyone else had even seen this happen, he suddenly felt very alone. Then his best friend Greg showed up. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Who was with you on the day this happened? Oh, boy. I've already got a chill up my back. It was, uh, Greg was my, was my teammate uh, during the rescue itself, and there were probably about eight or nine of us in total, uh, you know, clearing the ski run from deadfall and in debris, you know, preparing it for the next ski season, as it were. Okay. So Greg was the primary person you were working with, uh, the, the closest that day anyway. Yeah. Greg and I, we had, uh, the whole team had, had, uh, broke for lunch. We had, you know, refueled our, our saws and our, our weed whackers and all of our equipment and got some liquids inside of us and ate our lunch. And then we were, we were getting ready to sort of attack the afternoon ski run that we were going to clear and we, we had a plan the plan was to uh, send greg down in the polaris ranger to the bottom of the hill with uh, fuel and resupplies water and whatnot extra chainsaws and then work his way back up and we were going to work our way down i looked over at greg and it looked like he was going to go in the buggy by himself and i said hey greg what, what what's up you going alone he said yeah and i i didn't think that was such a great idea plus i 
uh, anytime I, I'll pass up the opportunity to work really hard if I can ride around in a oversized golf cart, <laughs> as it were. So I hopped in with him and we went to the bottom of the hill. So that's, that's kind of how the setup all happened. And so we had guys up at the top uh, working our way down and Greg and I were going to work our way from the bottom to the uh, midpoint. So you, yeah, and you mentioned this was a ski run. So obviously it's a long hill, but this is in the summertime, of course. So there was no snow, but this is the time to clear out the trees and, and all the debris that collects over the time so that it can be okay to use during the winter. So your job today, you had, you mentioned you had chainsaws. You were primarily clearing trees. Yeah, there's deadfall that fall into the, into these, uh, old ski runs. And yeah, so, and then plus, I don't know what species they are. I'm not, not an herbologist, but you know, the bushes and stuff grow up through. So you can have, you know, you can have two feet of snow and have good coverage and not hit obstacles and whatnot. And in big snow years, that all gets covered. But, uh, in light snow years, you want it clear so you don't ski across a stomp or, or a fallen tree. And that was the gist of the operation. You've used the word buggy. And I've seen a picture of this thing. This is no buggy. What you're talking about is an ATV, and the model is a Polaris Ranger. And this thing, you know, so, I mean, you can call it an ATV. And but when I picture an ATV, I'm thinking of a one person, you know, running through the trails and jumping over rocks and stuff like that. But this thing is huge. Can you describe it? And we'll have a picture of this on the website so you, so people can see what it's, what it looks like. Yeah, you know, I, I hasten to call it an ATV. It's really a small car, is what it is, or a small pickup. Um, I think I've I've kind of done a little bit of research, and I think with the tools and the chainsaws and the fuel and the water in the back of the buggy, it's a four seater roll cage. This this model had a had a winch, probably weighed in at, at about eighteen hundred pounds. That's a big buggy. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It is. And I looked on the specs of it, and it has an 11.5-inch ground clearance, which is 29 centimeters. So it runs fairly low to the ground. So you started, you guys took the, you took the ATV, the two of you took your ATV to the bottom of the hill, and then you rode partway up. What was the, what was the plan here? Well, we had a car. Greg's uh, quite a bit fitter than I am physically, and uh, we got to the bottom. We'd been cutting all morning, so I was pretty. I was already feeling the fatigue of uh, being a recreational logger, as it were. And uh, Greg and I debated to to take it up the road cut to take it up onto the hill. And uh, Greg was perfectly comfortable leaving it parked, and I uh, encouraged you know I encouraged him to let's drive it up as far as we could so that I don't have to uh, waste any energy. So we, we we ended up driving it up the hill. It started to get it started to pitch up the ski hill started to pitch up quite a bit so we decided to just pull it sideways you know perpendicular to the fall line if you will and uh, we cut the wheel wheels uphill in case it slipped out of gear or something like you know something that would never happen in a million years and uh yeah the story you know, once again starts from there so greg was driving he parked it and you got out and started walking down while he was still parking it is that yeah, yeah, correctly. Yeah, well, not to not to uh, throw anybody under the bus, but you know, Polaris when they made that particular model and year of of ATV, they did not put a parking brake on the darn thing. So, Greg and I debated on how to park it and all this stuff. And you know, I I'm I'm from the construction industry and I'm a little bit brash at times. And I was 
pretty much just like, uh, fuck it, Greg, this thing's not going anywhere. And I grabbed my saw, you know, had my Kevlar chaps on, my safety helmet with my hearing protection, my two liter camel back on, uh, on my back. And I headed downhill to hit some, you know, four inch, four inch aspen trees, uh, that would be skiers left. So I, I headed downhill, he headed uphill and, and, uh, that's how it started. When you said this thing's not going anywhere, if there was an example of famous last words, that's got to be the epitome of that. <laughs> I'm sure you've probably thought about that uh, many times since then. Yeah, I've relived that day quite a bit. The Ranger was parked directly above you, but you said that as you were working, it was kind of invisible to you. Well, what did you? What do you mean by that? Well, you know, when you're when you're on a job site or out in the woods with your buddies cutting trees down, you got to keep your head on a swivel. You know, you got to always be, you know, situational awareness, I guess I'll call it. And so I took one back. I, I took a glance back to see that Greg was far enough away that if he was falling a bigger tree, it wouldn't fall on me, etc. And I didn't even like, yeah, that's a great word, Scott, invisible. That Polaris Ranger was invisible to me. I never thought about it in a million years that that thing would uh, somehow slip out of gear. Or I read what you wrote about this and you mentioned that there were a few mistakes made. You should have hiked up the hill with the chainsaws rather than driving up. You should have confirmed it was in park. You should have chalked the tires. And you should have had a contingency plan. And obviously, looking back, those things would have all been great, but none of those things were in place. So, okay, so take it from there. You, you're down, downhill from it. You put on your hearing protection from your chainsaw. How much can you hear when you have your, your hearing protection on? Oh, it knocks down quite a bit. It, it really, you know, I'm no earologist. <laughs> I don't know if that's what it's called, but I'm no earologist. But it, it knocks down that that piercing thing that that causes deafness over time. So, yeah, yeah, it uh, it knocks quite a bit out for sure. Um, yeah, so I started my saw. Uh, it was a great saw, and uh, I miss it. But the uh, saw started one pull, so I was basically you know looking downhill hunched over because you want to cut trees off as low as you can so when that snow coverage isn't super deep you don't catch it with a ski tip or something like that so i started cutting and next thing you know uh i felt this huge i I, well actually i thought greg had shoved me and 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 I'm like, why is Greg for a nanosecond? I thought, why is Greg shoving me? I'm running a live chainsaw here, wide open. What is going on? I mean, for a nanosecond. But the next thing I know, I see a knobby tire going by my face, like inches from my face, and I realize, oh, I just got run over by this, you know, small car, and I'm getting drug underneath it. So it happened so fast. But what I think happened is I got I got flung a back against the plexiglass windshield, if you will. And then it just ran me over, just flat out ran me over and was grinding me up like a, like just every which way it it had its way with me. I I had no control over what was happening. Did you lose consciousness at all? At that point? No, I didn't. I really thought I, I, I put it all together very quickly and I really thought that thing would just keep going over me and I would get spit out the back end and I would just be like, holy cow, look what just happened. And I, I, I knew, I knew I was in deep trouble because I was getting beat up pretty good. And I, I knew I wasn't going to go back to work after that, but, uh, I knew I was going to be able to sit up 
look around and tell Greg what happened. And we could have limped out of there and I would have gone home for the day. That's really how I thought it was going to pan out. And it didn't, uh, didn't, didn't happen that way. Uh, there, there's, you know, very few rocks on this particular slope and, uh, the ATV hit a, about a three inch diameter rock that was half buried. So it wasn't just sticking up out of the thing. It, it, it ran over in the rock and it stopped the ATV on top of me, like square on top of me, crushed my ankle, trapped my ankle between my left ankle between, I think what was probably the steering linkage the left steering linkage on the ATV and this rock. So it's like musical chairs. All this chaos is happening totally out of my control. And then boom, the music stopped. And, uh, yeah, this is where it gets hard to tell the story, but it was terrifying. And I didn't know if Greg had started his saw already and if that had been the case, he may not have heard me. So for that nanosecond, I, it, it the, uh, the world stood still. I was alone and really not sure what was going to happen next. On these low clearance machines, there's, there's typically a steel skid plate. And that skid plate had just squashed me. My right arm was probably wrapped up over my head. Somehow my left arm, I didn't know where that was at. I, I couldn't feel anything. Well, well, I could, I could move my eyelashes and my vocal cords and I was really struggling to breathe. I mean, the breathing part was really critical and it later on, it was about a 45 minute period that I was trapped underneath there, but the breathing became very difficult, very labored. And I had to really calm my mind because, I, you know, hyperventilating or panicking underneath there was not an option because Every breath I took in was was really critical during the thing. So I, I was I was pancaked. I couldn't move any part of my body. Ultimately, I think my first plan of having that thing just keep going down the hill and crash into a clump of trees would have been the best thing. You know, potentially or not. We don't know if the the back differential would have hit me in the head and I would have had a massive head injury. So we don't know. So once time stood still there for a nanosecond. And I was, I was really alone. I've never felt that alone in my life. I immediately started screaming out for Greg because like I said, I didn't know if he started his saw saw not or not yet. And, um, so Greg luckily hadn't started his saw, came running down to assess the situation. And he, you know, this was a new to him. This is new information to him. He didn't see what happened. And so he's like, what's going on? You know, so immediately he started trying to lift the machine. Well, this is an 1800 pound car trapped on top of me. I'm kind of writhing in pain and I'm not necessarily calm at this point. I'm like, get it off me, get it off me. And he tries to lift it. Well, you know, you hear stories about uh, mothers lifting cars off of trapped children with the adrenaline rush and stuff like that. And in in our case, it wasn't like that. You know, it's still an eighteen hundred pound hunk of iron and plastic. Unfortunately, the the laws of physics still applied. Yes, yeah, they sure do, man. Gravity gravity wins in those situations. So I've been doing construction my whole life, pretty much. I do have uh, I've taken some college level physics, and I so immediately I started yelling fulcrum, 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 grab a rock or a stomp and start a fulcrum. And Greg did. 
Uh, Greg grabbed some fallen trees, you know, the deadfall from seasons before. Uh, he probably grabbed, a, I, I'm estimating, about a six-inch diameter uh, tree and st- tried to start a fulcrum. The, the idea of this, obviously, was to put this long log, wedge it under the ATV, but on top of a nearby rock, and leverage it up so that it releases the pressure from you. Yeah, yeah, that was the theory. I was getting so squashed, and it was so incredibly painful. I just needed some relief, and we needed to buy time. We really needed time on our side because I was in a pretty bad situation. Greg couldn't see me, and I couldn't see Greg. I saw the weeds, and I could see maybe part of his legs and feet. I I don't know what I could see because, like I said, my eyes were closed most of the time because it was so painful. But we just needed to buy some time. We just needed to, to, to hit pause and find out what the heck was going on, what my injuries were. So that was the theory. So so Greg got this fulcrum makeshift fulcrum started, and I did feel some some pressure relief. So as he started the fulcrum and started to stand on the other end of the the the, the log. It was rotten inside. We didn't know this. It was rotten inside. So I'm starting to get pressure off, and then boom, it releases back onto me all with the full pressure. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. 
and you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I immediately said, Greg, you know, grab your saw, cut down another tree if you have to, but start another fulcrum. I wasn't in the position to uh, tell anybody what to do, but I needed him. I needed that fulcrum pressure off. So, and Greg's like, no, 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 I got it. There's another log here. So he grabbed another one and got it started. He, he, you know, and got another one started. And I just will inject this about Greg. Greg did a magnificent job, this whole entire rescue. And for the longest time after this happened, I thought Greg was standing on the log on the fulcrum and steadying himself with one hand while he's making the, the 911 call off of another tree. No, that wasn't the case. It was raining. We had lightning. We had all sorts of crazy stuff that no one would ever believe going on. And he was standing there balancing no hands because there was no tree next to him that he could balance off of. So, you know, shout out to Greg and uh, Archimedes that came up with the fulcrum. So, <laughs> And that's one thing we haven't even talked about, the weather conditions right now. You've got an electrical storm, a thunderstorm happening while this is all going on. You, you, you can't make this up. I mean, when we started down the hill in the buggy, afternoon thunderstorm, which is in Colorado, is very common. Afternoon thunderstorm was rolling in. It was starting to rain a little bit. And I was a little uneasy about the lightning, to be honest with you. I'm not a big fan of, of uh, I, I can handle the rain. Yeah, we can all deal with that. But getting hit by a, a lightning bolt uh, is unfavorable. So by the time this, I got trapped, it was downpouring. I mean, uh, utter, and by the time Greg was on the fulcrum, it was an utter downpour. And on cue, a lightning bolt hit so close that it just, it rocked my feelings. I mean, it was incredibly close lightning strike. And so Greg and I were both kind of under the opinion that, well, you know, we're kind of having a shitty day already. If we get zapped by lightning, oh, well, that's, that's the way the, the cookie crumbles and it's our time. So we had a little bit of lightheartedness around that. I asked him if he was, if he was living clean because uh, I, I don't know if I'm, I was, I was living clean at the time. So he was able to use the new log or new tree and actually get the pressure off of you uh, while he was standing on it. Yeah, this is this is where this gets pretty crazy because he, you know, cell reception in the mountains is is intermittent and spotty at best. So for whatever reason, he had enough bars to call nine one one. So he got a hold of the local nine one one dispatch, explained our location and all that, and then in the meantime. My teammates, our teammates were up above us with, with fresh fuel in their saws and whatnot, and they're working their way down. So we could hear the chainsaws working above us, but they couldn't hear us. So this is amazing. I mean, the, 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 you got to have this guy on the show, but this is amazing. He's, he's talking to dispatch, doing what he did. I'm screaming. I'm barking orders at him because I'm like really trying to convey him the desperate situation, the sense of urgency. And then he's, meanwhile, in between talking to dispatch, he's screaming uphill to try to get some, you know, my teammates' attention that we're in trouble. 911, where's your emergency? Uh, okay, and what's going on there? Uh, we've got a gentleman trapped under a Polaris Ranger, and he's in bad shape. Okay, how old is he, do you know? 
He's 50 years old. Is he conscious right now? He is. Is he breathing okay? He is. Okay. Does he have any obvious injuries? Like, is he bleeding? Anything broken? Uh, his ankle is definitely broken. He's trapped under, underneath the Ranger. So it's basically, is it a four-wheeler or like a... Yeah, it's a four-wheeler, okay. a four-person four-wheeler. Okay. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold while I page out an ambulance. Stand the line okay. for me, okay? Yep. They're sending an ambulance. Yeah. Where where at the ski area are you? Uh, we're about halfway down the mountain from the cabin. Um, there's two ski runs that come off the top of the very top of the mountain. We are on the one that is on the left-hand side, uh, approximately halfway down. So you're on the actual mountain. You're not like on a road uh, or anything like that. Yes, we are on the actual mountain. Okay, I'm gonna put you back on hold. I'll be right back. Okay, that's someone in the area. They're gonna send the fire department. Yeah, they're, that's what she's getting is the sheriff's in route now. Stay! 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 Sir, thanks for holding. Are you, yeah. are you with the patient right now or did you have to come down? No, I'm with, I'm with the patient. Okay. Do you, do you see any roads or anything that responders are going to be able to get there? In truck. They're gonna, I'm going to have to talk to them because it's, it's kind of convoluted to get in there. So as soon as, as, soon as someone gets to the base, um, please have them call me and I can, I can guide them up as far as what road they need to come in. Okay. Okay. All right, I'm going to put you back on hold. I'll be right back. Okay. Dad! Dad! Jerry! Jerry! Dad! Good. Hope they'll stop and now they're walking down. No, I don't, but now that they Jerry! Still there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you think it's gonna be accessible by vehicles or are they gonna need OHVs? Like No, they can drive in in a in a in a regular car. Okay. They can drive in a regular car. All right, we're getting them headed your way. Okay. And how how's he doing? Is he still conscious? Yes, he is. Okay. Is he still breathing normally? Yes. Okay. And how long ago did this happen? Twenty minutes ago. Okay. Let me get you out these guys. number. If his okay. conscious level or breathing changes, give me a call back on 911 before they get there, okay? You know, in listening to that, Greg sounded remarkably calm. What were you thinking when you heard him talking with 911? I mean, he's like, he's totally professional. I mean, you this, this it was a very serious situation. What were you thinking about that? 
Well, it's, it's, uh, this is where I, you know, I swear I wouldn't get emotional on your show, but, uh, Greg and I have been friends since Little League Baseball back in the 70s in North Boulder. And, you know, there's certain people that you would want to go through that situation with. And, um, the only person on the planet I would want to go through that with it would be Greg and, um, his, his calm demeanor and his wherewithal to, to keep me calm because I, he had a, he didn't know if I was bleeding out, if I had a spinal cord injury, if I was paralyzed, he couldn't see me. I, you know, I could have been bleeding out. I could have had a collapsed lung, which I didn't, thankfully. It, it was a really desperate situation. And, and to have those nerves of steel to command that situation, it, it just speaks volumes about the character of this man. And I, I'm forever indebted to him because he had his hands full. I mean, task management wise, you know, he had me barking at him. He had 911 talking, you know, communications between everybody was, was very difficult because the fire rescue squad didn't, didn't have comms communications and it was hectic, very hectic. And Greg managed the whole, the whole thing. It was crazy. I'm trying to put myself in your position and you knew how serious the situation was. And Greg probably did too, but when you're hearing him and he's so calm, did it worry you that maybe he didn't realize how bad it was and that <laughs> he really should be panicking a little bit more? Uh, oh, 100%, Scott. You nailed it, man. I'm, a, I'm underneath there literally dying and just getting crushed to death. And, and you know, I'm no hero, you know, like, but I can tolerate some pain. I've been around this world long enough. Like, I can tolerate some, but I was in a lot of pain. And, and, you know, Greg's just like, okay, here's here's where we're at and here's what's happening. And your dispatch is doing their due diligence. And I'm just like going, Holy fuck. I am fucking dying here. Can someone please step up the, the, uh, the sense of urgency? But, you know, that would have been the, that would have been the worst thing possible for Greg to freak out and start screaming into the, into the, into his cell phone. You know, that would have been the, the worst thing that could happen all day. So, you know, thank God Greg just, just kept it together, you know, and, and we've been through a lot of shit in our life. And, and so that was, you know, in hindsight, it was just spectacular. You know, it was really spectacular. And I've heard those 911 calls where people are just panicking and, and, they, and then they're useless. You know, I, <laughs> totally. sometimes the 911 dispatch operator has to say, can you put somebody else on the phone? You know, somebody that I can actually yeah. do something with. Yeah. Okay. So by this time, the other workers had gotten down and they were kind of trying to strategize how to get this thing off of you. And one of the ideas they came up with was to use the winch mm -hmm. on the front of the ATV. <laughs> and you said, no, don't do that. Why was that a bad idea? Well, you know, I'm facing downhill. My left foot and ankle is crushed on this steering linkage. And they're like, let's hook up the winch. That's all I heard. I heard, you know, I could hear them talking, working and strategizing. And, and I'm, they're like, I'm, they're like, hook up the winch. I'm like, no, don't hook up the winch because if you pull the winch forward, you're going to shear my foot off. Literally, it would have sheared my foot off, like just pop my ankle and foot off right there. And they would have been lights out. So I'm like, no. And then somebody reached in, you know, and, and please, if you're listening to this and you're one of my buddies up there, somebody reached in and they put their hand on the passenger side seat to get in the glove compartment to get out something for the winch and that little like five pounds of pressure then i was like no don't 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 touch the atv because greg had it just balanced just right 
So ultimately what they were doing was they were securing the ATV. They wrapped the, the cable back up around and they secured it to a tree behind us. And, and that was so that when they, if, if, and when they started to lift it, the ATV wouldn't roll forward and crush me further. So they, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what they're doing, but all I heard was winch and let's hook it up. And I'm like, no, please don't do that. So it took a while for the rescue personnel to get there, but you had, there were enough people there that Greg couldn't lift this thing by himself. But they all tried lifting it together, right? Did that did that do any good? Well, like I said, they didn't know if I was bleeding out, spinal cord injury, et cetera, et cetera. So at one point, if they moved that the wrong way, they could have killed me. If they move it the wrong way and they get injured in the process and drop it back on my head, you know, I'm dead anyway. So they were in a no-win situation. So finally... I was, I got really quiet because I was running out of adrenaline and whatever. And I basically barked out at someone to come down, lean down and so that I could talk to them. I said, everybody needs to come to my side of the ATV and lift. I need out of here right now. You know, I didn't, I, it wasn't that long of a sentence, but I said, everyone needs to come to my side and start lifting. And that's what happened. You know, I, I had to give them permission to go for it. And they, they got themselves in a position to do that. So I think it was Greg. Uh, one of the guys, Scott, hurt his back on the lift. Um, he was in therapy for physical therapy for, for several months afterwards. Thank you, Scott, for sacrificing your body to get me out of there. But, but at that point, they, they all started lifting. All the blood started rushing back to my legs, my knees. All of a sudden, my knees lit up with pain. And then I don't have any memory of from the time they started lifting until the time I got out on the rocks next to it. And so they, they lifted it off me. And then somehow two people maybe just, hoisted me out of there because they couldn't leave that thing lifted up in the air forever. So I don't know how that took place. Someone will have to tell me. When you come to again, you're looking up and you're seeing sky rather than skid plate. That yep. had to be a somewhat of, <laughs> even if you're in pain, that had to be a relief. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and like I said, the blood started circulating to the rest of my body and, and it was, it was a glorious moment. I look up at the Aspen canopy and the, and the thunderstorm had blown by at this time. And I'm looking at blue sky and, you know, vibrant green Aspen canopy. And that, that was a glorious moment. You know, that's when you're like, Hey, I might live and I'll never forget, never forget that. So, you know, being bossy in nature, I pretty much told the guys once they got me flopped out on the rocks or, or the, the grass or whatever it was, I said, nobody touch me. Just nobody touch me because I didn't know which leg was going, which direction and arms. And I was a real mess. So I, one by one, I had somebody, I said, somebody needs to, to cradle my head and put my head upright, you know, get it more, ver you know, aligned with my spine. I said, okay, some, so-and-so touched the, you know, move my right leg, like don't do it fast. So one by one, I started getting people to get hands on me to get me into a quasi comfortable position. A lot of people were kind of assessing my my injuries, and this is before the the medical uh, staff had had shown up. But somebody said, "Oh, his right arm's definitely broken," and my my left ankle <clears throat> definitely looked broken, and it was bad. But what I had had in hindsight is called a brachial plexus injury, so it's kind of a dead arm. I had a nerve damage 
coming down from my spine to my right arm. I did not feel my arm at all, like nothing. I'm like, if this is what a broken arm feels like, I'm in good shape. The the thing that really stood out to me, my ankle, of course, but was my left side. I had my camelback on. Can you describe the camelback for people that don't know what a camelback is? Yeah, Camelback, I guess, is a brand name, but it's a, you know, it's a water hydration system, like a backpack, and it's got the, the bladder in, and I think mine was a two liter, which is a fairly good size, uh, water hydration system. But yeah, so I had my Camelback on, which probably saved me when I was getting tumbled. But, uh, yeah, I kept my left ribs were very, like, it felt like sticks were sticking into my ribs on my left side. So I kept asking my teammates, Hey, man, get the sticks. Something's jabbing me on the left side. Something's jabbing me on the left side. I said, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing. I'm like, please move the sticks. Well, in hindsight, what it was, was all my broken ribs poking me from the inside, making it, you know, simulating uh, sticks poking me in the side. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Just a little something about the helicopter. Because of Greg's wherewithal and what he was telling 911 dispatch, the incident commander was able, he called the helicopter in advance. He, he kind of assessed the situation and went with a gut feel because Greg was so calm and not freaking out. They had called the helicopter in advance. So at one point, somebody, a sheriff or somebody that was there prior to the, to the medics said something about a helicopter. And I'm like, that's music to my ears. And this is where I probably would get emotional again, but. When you're in that much pain and you know that driving you down to a local hospital or clinic is, is going to be a long, hard journey, somebody saying helicopter was, was a godsend. And so I heard helicopter and, and I swear it wasn't 20 seconds later, we heard the rotor noises of a helicopter. Now there happened to be classic air was stationed at an airport nearby. So because the incident commander and Greg had communicated uh, in a crude fashion, that helicopter was on its way way before I ever knew it. So the, the helicopter uh, was too steep to land. So the, the helicopter circled a few times to assess the situation. And they had radio communications with the incident commander on the ground that was, that was next to us. So the, the helicopter had to come in and put its front skids into the dirt at an angle and then let the air medics and their bags and equipment out. So they basically hovered while the medics got out and got to me. Then the helicopter took off, went to the top of the hill to a flat spot. So they got me hooked up with ketamine, which is ironic because ketamine has been part of my solution for my PTSD. And we'll get to that in a minute. But um, there's a couple times I did, I have no memory. One was getting um, drug underneath the machine. Two was when the machine was lifted off of me. And the third was when they were getting me on the backboard, even though I had pain meds on board. That was pretty painful and uh, traumatic. <laughs> so the helicopter's 1,500 yards or whatever up above us, up, up a fairly steep vertical face. And we had to get my fat ass up the hill on a backboard, up this steep hill to get to the helicopter. So that was the next challenge. It doesn't sound like a very comfortable ride to be carried on a backboard. These guys must have, I mean, as they're carrying you and you're moaning in pain, they must have felt guilty every time they hit a bump or something, right? No, we, I, I tried to make it as light as possible, you know, light in spirit, because I think once that ketamine got on board, I was trying to crack jokes and, and make everybody comfortable. But I have since tried to replicate hiking up that hill, not carrying anybody. And it's really steep and really long. It's probably not 1,500 uh, yards, but um, I'm sure to the to the team. There was about 15 people there, men and women, uh, first responders. All my buddies pitched in, and they were 
kind of doing a rotation and taking breaks as we went and uh, stabilizing me and, and, and all that stuff. So it was it was a heck of a deal. It was about a three-and-a-half-hour rescue. It happened around 2 in the afternoon, and then by the time they got me loaded on the helicopter, it was about 5.30. Do you remember anything about the helicopter ride? I do. That was a heck of a helicopter ride. I've had the opportunity. I've been blessed by the opportunity. I've, I've done some helicopter skiing in Alaska and Canada. So I'm not unfamiliar with the process of, of getting on a helicopter and getting off a helicopter and the rotor noise. So that's not unfamiliar with me to me, but I, it got me shoved on the bird and I had a minor cut on my right ear. And I had been lying on that side. So a bunch of blood had dripped into my ear hole on my right side. And the cut was pretty minor, but but ears can bleed. So they get me strapped in and I'm strapped and duct taped to the to the to the backboard. And we're we're, we're we take off or flying to Denver. Well, two things happened. One is my pain, I was in a lot of pain. So I asked the air medic, it's noisy. He's got a headset on me for hearing protection because you know, liability, etc. Like that. Well, it was hurting that cut on my ear. So first thing I needed to do was try to get that headset off. So I I can't move. I mean, I'm strapped down, you know, and so I I kind of screamed out to the to the medic, hey, can you take these off and he you know he had to take his off to hear me a lot of rotor noise so basically i said hey take these off and leave them off and he's like no we need to protect your ears i said i won't sue you please take them off i'm in construction i'm deaf already please take these off because it hurts my ear you know that it's it's hurting my cut so he took them off and then i then immediately once i got established communications with him i said hey we need to turn up whatever pain meds you have and he's like no we can't do that i said go all the way full blast. He goes, you got to be awake when we get to Denver to talk to the doctors and, and the trauma, the trauma docs in Denver. I said, I'll pro- I promise you, I will wake up when I get to Denver, but turn up the volume on whatever you're giving me. So that was an interesting conversation. He took me right to the limit. I was in and out. I, I could remember out of the corner of my eye, seeing the, the puffy clouds and the thunderstorm that had passed over us. And uh, so that, that was how my ride went to Denver. So when you get to the hospital and you got assessed, what were your actual injuries? Well, believe it or not, my ankle was not broken. It it had some deep, deep puncture wounds, we'll call it, and it was swollen to the size of whatever. But uh, uh, broken ribs, brachial plexus injury, nerve damage to my right hand and arm, nerve damage to my left foot. Um, and during, during the rescue, I was trapped for about 45 minutes and, and what the medics were really concerned about is something called compartment syndrome. It's where the blood pools into your tissue and it can't come out and recirculate new oxygenated blood. And I've been told by medical professionals that if I had been under there for another 15 or 20 minutes, I could have potentially started losing limbs, you know, particularly my, my lower legs because it was so, the blood was so restricted to those areas. So really quickly, they assessed me for another, you know, for spinal cord injuries. And then that night, you know, I was pretty loopy because then they got me on the real meds. It was in and out of MRI machines and scans and this, that, and the other thing. And I did not get a lot of sleep that night. It was pretty rough. And how long were you in the hospital? I was in there for four days. I kept thinking I was going to get out. I, I had a little bit. I just kept thinking my folks came down from Boulder to, to help me out. And, you know, I just kept thinking I was getting out. But they kept drawing blood. And apparently there's some blood markers that, you know, indicate that, that things aren't stable yet. But, yeah, no surgeries. I had no surgeries, no spinal cord injury. I mean, it was a, it was definitely um, lucky. To, I won the lucky to be alive lottery definitely could have been a whole lot worse and you survived obviously but following that 
you experienced PTSD. What was the first sign that that was going on? <laughs> well, you know, people that know me know I'm a little off off my rocker at times. But, uh, you know, the first year I, I, I really bragged to people like, oh, I'm doing so great. I don't have PTSD. I mean, I made, I made it a point to tell people the first year that I'm a miracle. Like I've got my my act together and I don't have PTSD. I mean, I would make a point to that at cocktail parties or whatever. Like I don't have PTSD. Isn't this great? Well, year two, I, I started a podcast in, in, the, uh, in January of 2019, this happened in 18, and I started a podcast, and part of it was to be able to tell my story and help people with uh, suicide prevention and PTSD and all this other stuff, uh, but at the first year anniversary, I was going to do a podcast about my accident. Well, I sat down with a friend, and we tried to record a podcast. Well, guess what? I was a puddle of tears for, for two or three hours. And finally, my friend was just like, you're not ready to tell your story. You're kind of a mess. I'm like, you're right. I'm a mess. So I, you know, nobody thinks they have, you know, for me, I didn't think I had PTSD, but I did. And, and it, it, it escalated all the symptoms you can read off the internet. It escalated and, and I became, oh, suicidal. You know, the suicidal, I was very high on the suicidal ideation scale. Let me put it that way. And uh, it resulted from other stuff too in my life. But this accident kind of propelled that all forward and brought it to the forefront. How did you combat that? What was your strategy against that PTSD and, and the suicidal tendencies? Well, I think the modern healthcare system is really good at doing the trauma stuff that we just talked about, you know, flying somebody to Denver and assessing them for spinal cord injuries, et cetera, keeping them alive. And I think there's room for improvement in the mental health space that I think people, I think there are a lot of people, I don't have papers to prove it, but there are a lot of people walking around with trauma that's been unaddressed. And, and some people can say, well, well, you have an addiction problem. You have a, this problem. You have this and that and the other thing. But it really comes down to, correctly identifying and, and uh, what, what is going on with me in this case, because I had seen, you know, I'd seen counselors over my lifetime and, and I'm 10 years sober from alcohol. So, you know, I'm familiar with the, the concept of recovery and, but PTSD was never really totally identified with me. And, and I'll just fast forward. It, it became pretty critical in January of 2021. So six months ago, I, uh, my symptoms increased to the point where I was calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, which I'll give that number out here in a little bit. I was talking to peer counselors at the same number, the Colorado crisis number in my case, and started telling my story a little bit, my childhood story, things that have happened along the way, and then my accident. And it became clear that I had PTSD, and I didn't think I ever did, and, and uh, so I'm not ashamed to say it. And but, uh, you know, thankfully through this podcast and meeting great folks like you, I've come to believe that PTSD is curable, curable, or at very least treatable anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. You went back on, on the two year anniversary of the accident. You actually went back to the scene of where it happened. What went through your head as you were there again? Well, that was kind of an interesting process. At the two-year mark, I was going to publish another episode. You know, I was going to publish my story again, you know, just something about the two-year anniversary. Well, I had written my story out, and I wasn't ready to tell the story. So I worked that day. You know, the days are a little bit longer in July in Colorado. And so I took off work, and I just, just straight from work, just jumped in my truck and went to the site. 
and uh, it was a lovely evening and uh Man, you're just going to make, you just, do you make everybody cry on your show, Scott? <laughs> you got a knack We tell that. the stories and what happens was what happens, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically I went up there, found, I started hiking up the hill. I drove my, my, my four-wheel drive truck down to the bottom of the hill, just like Greg and I had done. Had, had a camel back on. I like to stay hydrated. Hiked up the hill. I was all dirty and grungy from work and and uh, found the location where it had happened and i thought i'd found it before but then i hiked up a little bit further it got a little steeper and then i started finding and this is you know kind of emotional for me but started finding parts to my chainsaw that had been you know pretty much decimated plastic parts off off the chainsaw and i mean i mean i i love that chainsaw and i i know those were my parts so i uh, made a little video and and picked up the parts and had a little reflecting time up up on the mountain by myself and with nature and really just gave thanks to to my friends and to the first responders that uh made this possible and uh it was it was a pretty heavy heavy spiritual time and and a, and a time of gratitude and reflection really it was uh pretty profound and and I went home and that night and uh called a friend uh down in denver told told her what had happened and what I had been up to and, and we exchanged pleasantries. And I, I think I slept a little bit better that night. It was, it was pretty heavy though. It almost seems like a, a sense of closure going back after you've mostly recovered from this thing and finding those parts to your chainsaw. It's almost feels like a, a souvenir. Yeah. Yeah. They're still sitting on my desk at my office and, you know, my chainsaw is still there. The Kevlar chaps that I was wearing that day to, to protect your legs in the event of a, of a cut. I still use the helmet, the same helmet that I had on, you know, when I'm chainsawing or cutting timbers. Um, I still use that stuff. Well, I don't use the same <laughs> chainsaw, but I have a different one to back up. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, souvenirs are an interesting way to look at it. And it's a reminder. It's a daily reminder for me to have a attitude of gratitude and that there's no guarantee of tomorrow. I mean, that was a one in a million accident and the outcome of it was one in a million. And I've been doing this stuff a long time. And that, that was a one in a million opportunity to, uh, take a look at my life. You mentioned your podcast. What's the name of that? And what's it about? Well, it's called The Builder's Journey with apostrophe in there. I didn't start the podcast to be rich or famous, and I'm not a super big on social media. Maybe someday that'll change, but it's really based. There's, I always give out the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number once or twice on the show, no matter who the guest is. We don't focus strictly on suicide prevention, but I always give that number out. Um, we've had some some local influencers on the show. We've had a county commissioner or two on the show, or the town mayor. And then my, my buddies have been on the show and friends and we do fart joke, fart joke episodes, kind of lowbrow humor. And I like to just keep it real. And, uh, I'm supportive of the armed services and, and, uh, first responders. And we try to focus our stuff on that a little bit when we can. Given the opportunity, I, I think everyone should check it out. It's the builder's journey. It's a look at the Vale Valley through the eyes of a builder. And uh, that's what I am. I'm a builder, and, and uh, hopefully we can start some new relationships. And, and I appreciate you giving me that platform to shout that out. And with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and give out that National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number. I'm going to go into my uh, podcast voice. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. 
So uh, give those good folks a call if you happen to be in a position that uh, you think they could, they could benefit you. And that just may save someone's life. Yeah, yeah. So thank you, Scott, for that platform. Alex, congratulations on making it through. And congratulations on 10 years sober. That's no small feat either. Yeah. And uh, thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, Scott. Thanks. Be well. You can check out Alex's podcast at thebuildersjourney.com. And if you subscribe to that podcast, you'll probably hear me on there at some time in the not-too-distant future as he and I are working on setting up a time for him to interview me for his show. And I wanted to just mention something here. If you subscribe to my podcast, then you've seen a couple of times this past month, you've seen trailers for other podcasts show up in your feed. The first one was a trailer for a podcast called 912, and more recently there was a trailer for Badlands Season 2. And I just want to let you know, each time one of these is published in the podcast feed, it's because I chose it. I vet each one of these to make sure the podcast that's being promoted is one that you, my listener, would very likely be interested in. If a podcaster approaches me with a show about the upcoming football season, or professional wrestling, or stamp collecting, those promos would be declined. Not that they're bad topics, they're just not stuff that most of my listeners would be interested in. I only want to promote podcasts that I think you will really love. Just want to make sure you know where I'm at on that. Hi Scott, my name is Angela and I currently live in British Columbia, Canada. Like many people, I have begun working from home this year and I have found that podcasts have been an excellent way to help pass the day after experimenting and kind of listening around to see what appeals to me, I have landed on your show. And I just wanted to give you props for the compassion that you show for your guests. It's something that I have found lacking in a lot of other podcasts. And it is just so appreciated to be able to hear such a, such an unfiltered, unfiltered story from your guests. I think that your kind demeanor and the compassion that you show really facilitates that. Um, particularly with the last podcast I listened to, which was the father Travis who lost his son Brandon. I just found it so touching and honestly, like I've been quite grateful. I have not had anything very traumatic happen in my life, but I know that if that was to happen, um, it would be my wish to have someone like you that could show such empathy while also letting me get my story across. So I'm excited to hear what comes next, and I thank you for helping me pass my work days. Hi, Scott. My name is Brooke. I'm calling because I am just having this weird compulsion to let you know how weird my experience just listening to Robert was in gunfight with pirates. I had been trying to listen to the woman, Cherie, that was um, almost run over by her own car, I believe, and I kept clicking that one, and it just was like, nope, bloop, kept zapping me right back to the gunfight with pirates one, and I thought, well, that one's not going to be interesting to me. I want to listen to the other one. But after a couple tries on Apple Podcasts, just clicking the, <laughs> the one to listen to the one I wanted to, it just kept zapping me to the Robert was in a gunfight with pirates, so I thought, well... Fate will have it that I listened to this, I suppose. So I did, and the second I heard Robert talking, I, I just, I don't, I know this sounds strange, but his 
everything sounded so familiar to me. His voice, his um, the words he used, uh, the demeanor, and I don't—I mean, I'm, I don't think I know him, but I just was like, wow, this is really strange that this. The, the podcast app kept zapping me back to this one, and I just feel so strangely familiar with this person who I've never met. And uh, listening to the whole episode, I was totally wrong. It was extremely interesting and exciting, and I should have just listened to it anyway because, you know, you don't really put on things that aren't interesting. But the whole time thinking, it's just really weird that this man just sounds so familiar or so... I don't know. There's no other better word than just acquainted or familiar. Um, and I don't know him. And uh, the final straw was when you asked him at the very end what he had been listening to in his iPod. And I kid you not, I'm getting chills and goosebumps just thinking about it again right now. I always have music on in the background, regardless of whether I'm listening to a podcast or whatever. It's just... It's like a heart beating. It's just, it's there. It just exists. And I kid you not, at that very moment, I was listening to Deftones' Adrenaline album. And when he said he had been listening, <laughs> and I'm getting the goosebumps again, when he was listening to that album, I said, I'm going to call. I don't know why. I don't know what I expect to accomplish. But this is a sign from somebody somewhere that it's just too... Too much synergy to overlook, I suppose. Synchronicities are um, abundant. And if you have any comment about the podcast, or like Brooke, maybe some kind of unusual experience listening to a particular episode, or a question, or anything, just call the podcast voicemail line, 727-386-9468. You can call that number anytime, night or day, and it's never answered by a human being. It's always voicemail. So you just might hear yourself on a future episode of this podcast. And finally, I want to say thanks to everyone who supports the show through my Patreon. Yeah, patrons get ad-free new episodes and the bonus exclusive episodes. But what it really means when you become a supporter is that you're saying you like what I'm doing. You like the podcast and you want me to keep doing it. Well, that's really what puts gas in my tank. You can become a supporter at whatwasthatlike.com support. And now, this week's listener story, which needs a trigger warning because it talks about childhood trauma. Stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks. My whole life growing up, my mom had debilitating ocular migraines that would leave her crying afterward. And one of these migraines, my drunken stepdad at the time was screaming at her to sh shut her fucking mouth and then bunch of other nonsense he ended up freaking out and running outside and getting a shovel and he came back in and threw it toward me and he went into the spare bedroom and got a shotgun and uh aimed it at my mom's face and said if she doesn't shut the fuck up uh, i'm gonna shoot her and that i was supposed to go dig her a grave so i went outside at uh, 10 to 12 years old probably and started digging a hole in the woods. Sometime later, I heard a gun go off coming from my house. I wasn't that far away, so I ran off into the woods. That night, I came back and got my dog, who was always chained up out back, and 
went further into the state game lands that were right past my property line and stayed there for three days and two nights. Sometime later, I heard a four-wheeler on the third day and heard my mom yelling for me. I guess she was stopping every once in a while and calling out my name. So I ran up to her and I never really talked to her about it ever from that point forward. Uh, it was kind of just something that I dealt with. I blocked it out for a really long time and years later in therapy, it like triggered back into my memory. Just want to let everybody know that shit might be rough sometimes, especially as a kid, but I promise it gets better. I'm 24 years old now, so this was probably 12 to 14 years ago. I have an amazing family and a beautiful fiance and two amazing kids, one of those who is my stepdaughter, and I can promise on everything that she will never, ever be treated the same way I was. So keep your heads up and enjoy life as it is now. Uh